You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The group we're discussing today or, or that prompted this conversation, uh, we call Shukwurm. Other vendors know them as Gamereddon or Armageddon. And that is what is widely believed to be a Russia-sponsored group that has been conducting an ongoing espionage campaign against uh, Ukrainian organizations since at least uh, 2013. That's Dick O'Brien. He's a principal editor with Symantec's Threat Intelligence Research Team. The research we're discussing today is titled Shuckworm Continues Cyber Espionage Attacks Against Ukraine. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. It seems to be heavily focused on government or publicly owned organizations. You know, its main motivation appears to be primarily um, uh, intelligence gathering or information gathering. But Ukraine has also faced um, a a lot of other cyber threats. There have been some quite notable examples of, um, I guess, cyber attacks that were designed to be very disruptive and indeed could maybe be classed as sabotage. So, for example, um, in the winter of 2015, I think it was, there was uh, a number of attacks that were directed against uh, the Ukrainian power grid. This occurred right in the middle of winter. um, So you can obviously imagine uh, what the impact of that could have been, given the the climate over there. They have very cold winters. And these attacks were believed to be carried out by another Russian-sponsored group known as Sandworm, You know, they've carried out a variety of uh, actions worldwide, but they seem to be kind of more of a high level 
organization, more of a specialist group than, than Shookworm. There was also the uh, Petya, or also known as Not Petya, worm attack uh, in 2017. This was a, um, a wiper worm that spread. It was initially targeted at Ukraine because it was a worm, uh, managed to escape the borders of Ukraine very quickly, and an awful lot of international organizations were disrupted by it. It, it was masquerading as ransomware, but it was it was really just a, a wiper, and I think the the end goal of that attack appeared to be to to kind of cause havoc within Ukraine. More recently, um, as we all know, if anyone who's been watching the news knows, uh, there's there's been I think unprecedented levels of tension between Ukraine and Russia, uh, mainly uh, caused by a troop buildup on the uh, Russian troop buildup on the Ukrainian border. And we've seen some incidents, I guess, that are kind of outside of the normal run of activity that we'd see against Ukraine. So uh, there were some website defacements that occurred a couple of weeks ago. And then there was a, a wiper attack, not too dissimilar from, from the, the, the Not Petya incident in that it was disguised as uh, ransomware at the time. But it was a much more... Um, targeted kind of uh, wiper attack. So it, it kind of only affected um, organizations uh, in Ukraine. And I think, you know, the goal of these more recent public attacks is, I guess, uh, there's a propaganda value to them. You know, the websites were defaced with anti-Ukrainian political messages and also a disruptive element to them too, just to kind of add to the level of tension that we're experiencing at the moment. Well, let's dig into some of the specific uh, things that you all have highlighted in this research. You have some case studies of some things that you all have been tracking with Shuckworm. Can you walk us through what they're up to? Yeah, um, I can. All right. Um, I think, I mean, I guess the starting point for uh, this investigation was uh, a report published by uh, the Ukrainian government, uh, specifically the, the Secret Service of Ukraine back in November. Uh, it makes for a very interesting reading. It, it's uh, If you want to kind of get a primer on, on Shuckworm, this is a good place to start because it gives you the... The, the, the kind of background right from, from day zero, but also gives an update on, on what the group has been up to more recently. You know, this prompted our own investigation. We wanted to see if, if the activity described by the Ukrainian government was continuing and uh, if we could find out anything more ourselves. So what we have found is, um, I guess, a trove of uh, indicators of compromise, uh, evidence, signs of attack, and... Um, we published this blog, I guess, uh, uh, as um, we wanted to share this information publicly. Uh, we believe it may be of assistance to anyone who is hunting for uh, signs of shuckworm attacks on their network. We found a lot of things, but I guess the main thing we have uncovered is uh, a kind of a recent attack chains where we've been able to highlight how an attack has run from end to end against a particular organization. Gives, gives the reader, you know, I guess a bit of an insight into, into what these attackers are after. So I guess I'll describe the attack against, an attack against one organization as maybe a way of, of illustrating uh, what we've seen happening. So this attack occurred in over about two months in July and August of this year. Uh, we have seen more recent um, attacks, but this is the one where we have the most complete information. So um, I think this is why we chose to use it. Shuckworm has historically relied on phishing or spear phishing emails to compromise its victims. And this appears to be the case in this organization. 
because the first evidence of malicious activity occurred shortly after a suspicious Word doc was opened on a computer in the organization. Because shortly after it was opened, uh, we saw a malicious VBS file being uh, run to launch a, a backdoor. This has been used by Shookworm but, uh, recently called, uh, God, this is going to be very difficult to pronounce, Pterodo. <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, we didn't choose this name ourselves. <laughs> they then used the, this backdoor to download another executable and a couple of VBS scripts. Uh, and then they created a scheduled task on the computer. And this appeared to be designed to maintain persistence um, because essentially what it did was um, it made sure that one of those scripts was executed every 10 minutes. And the upshot of that is that the compromise remains live even if the user reboots their computer. Later on, um, we saw them once again installing new versions of the backdoor uh, and the associated scripts. And, th and this occurred like over and over, over the course of the same day. And then they were testing it against their command and control server. And it's a little bit unclear as to why they were kind of uh, repeating this process. Um, it may be that something didn't quite go right, or it may be that they were tweaking the backdoor because a new version was used every time to suit the victim's environment. Then a couple of days later, they came back they seemed to be happy eventually with their setup. And a couple of days later, they came back, ran a couple of commands, including one called flush DNS. That suggests that they, they might have updated their DNS records for their command and control servers because the flush DNS command was executed shortly before they attempted to install more backdoors that leveraged the same command and control So then not a lot happened. You know, They had their access. They didn't do much with it until maybe two weeks later. Yeah, two weeks later. They came back and they launched another version of this backdoor. There's a lot of versions of the backdoor being used in the campaign. Um, and I think after the initial trial and error process, they may be kind of constantly rolling out new versions, less to get picked up by security software. They kind of constantly, they want to kind of keep refreshing it. But anyway, they executed the backdoor. It was used to download a new file called Deerskin. Uh, .exe, and uh, this actually was a dropper um, for a VNC client. When it was executed, it tested its connectivity and then you know, dropped the VNC client uh, and established a connection to the command and control server. And this was a legit tool, but it was being used in, in a malicious uh, fashion, obviously. And, and we believe that this was, was the ultimate payload of the attack because uh, for two reasons, really, I think, Number one, nothing else of note was kind of installed on, on the computer after that appeared. And number two, there seemed to be uh, a lot of suspicious opening of documents uh, occurring on the computer after it was installed. So it looks like that they were using this to, to snoop around the computer and, and see if there was anything worth stealing from it. It sounds to me like they were fairly bold. Uh, um, and, uh, is it fair to say noisy in, in their operations? I, I guess... I'm curious, you know, to what degree was any of this uh, triggering any detection or, or was the, 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 uh, the system they infected particularly vulnerable to this kind of thing? Um, I think, you know, I mean, I, I think this, the system they infected wasn't in what you would probably expect to be a super highly secured environment. Now, this, this group, 
they have, I guess they have a history of being quite noisy, but there is, uh, you know, they have become much more sophisticated in recent years. And the fact that they kept on rolling out new versions of the malware means that they could be attempting to uh, fly under the radar, lest an older version be discovered and they try and run it again. They're kind of, they introduce a new one and use that uh, for the next task they want to perform. I see. So in terms of detection, response, protection against this particular group, what are you recommending? Okay, in terms of what we recommend, obviously um, anything malicious being used, any malware being used um, should be blocked by uh, security software. But I think people need to be aware that uh, this group is also making extensive use of um, legitimate tools, uh, such as remote administration tools. And they are often kind of the the payload being used in, in attacks. So there is, an, you know, you should be aware, you should monitor installations of software on your network. And if you see something that you, you don't expect to be there or shouldn't be there, uh, that should, should raise red flags. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like this is one of those cases where um, keeping tabs on background behavior would be in your best interest. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and obviously there should be awareness too that... Um, Spear phishing emails um, tend to be uh, their way into organizations, and the emails are usually pretty well crafted. Uh, they're designed to be to resemble legit communications that somebody working for one of these organizations might receive. So they they, they show good awareness of, of topical issues and, and, the, and the business of that organization. So obviously, educating your end users uh, with regard to spear phishing is key to. I suppose it's noteworthy as well, as you all point out in the research, this group has been active since at least 2013. So not only have they been around, you know, coming up on a decade here, but uh, Mm -hmm. they've increased the level of sophistication of their operations as well. Yes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there has been a notable uh, uh, step change in their capabilities uh, over the past couple of years based on what they used to do before. In terms of APT groups, they were quite unsophisticated. They just kind of, they tended to uh, favor um, quantity over quality. They seemed to kind of attempt to infect as many computers as possible and see what they could get from there. But as noted by the Ukraine government and as seen by ourselves, they're now kind of uh, doing what you would expect a, a modern APT group to do, that is moving laterally across the network, trying to steal credentials, all of that kind of thing. So, you know, whether more resources have been put into the group or, you know, whether there's been a, a change of management or, or whatever, but that they definitely seem to be much more capable than they were a few years ago. And is that a trend that, that tracks, you know, across uh the organizations that you all have your eye on? I mean, are we seeing overall a general increase in sophistication of these groups? Overall, yes. I think all of these groups tend to, you know, they, they, they tend to watch what's going on in the general threat landscape and they're quick to copy successful trends. But by and large, yeah, there has been um, a marked increase in sophistication. And I would say particularly with regard to actors from regional powers, maybe, as opposed to global powers, um, their their capabilities have come on an awful lot in the past uh, five to seven years. And yeah, there has been a shift away from custom malware 
to, um, I guess, publicly available tools and, and even legitimate tools all be used in a malicious way. Um, these have several advantages, really. Number one, it makes it harder to attribute attacks to a, a particular espionage actor, you know, if the tool is publicly available. And secondly, uh, they're less likely, uh, in the case of legitimate tools uh, or dual-use tools, to maybe raise red flags on, on a network as opposed to something that is just out-and-out malware. Our thanks to Dick O'Brien from Symantec for joining us. The research is titled Shuckworm Continues Cyber Espionage Attacks Against Ukraine. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.